Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. This week's episode is a recording of one of our Global Autism Community exclusive events. The theme of this roundtable discussion was controversial topics. It was hosted live at the 1 in 44 Tour Virtual Summit, organized by Sarah Bradford of the SJ Child Show. Participating in this event were autistic self-advocates Stephanie DeKramer, Ryan Litchfield, Michael Gilberg, Jeff Snyder, and Robert Schmoos along with community members Karen Shapiro, Ben Sharif, and Danielle Terrell. In today's conversation, we discuss person-first versus identity-first language, the puzzle piece symbol, and applied behavior analysis, or ABA for short. In this episode, discover what's possible when conversations move forward. To learn more about the participants in this discussion, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. Roundtable discussions like the one you'll hear today are open exclusively for members of our online global autism community. We select a different theme each month, and our moderators monitor posts daily to ensure that our online space remains safe and respectful. If you'd like to attend and participate in any of our future events, you can sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you the Global Autism Community. Welcome, everyone. Good to see you all again. I feel like it's been a while since our last roundtable all together. Well, just a quick introduction of who I am and who the Global Autism Project is. So my name is Rachel Harmon, and I'm the host of Autism Knows No Borders podcast, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. And our organization is honored to be sponsoring this virtual summit. So we're happy to be collaborating with Sarah on this really, really huge accomplishment that she's put together. The Global Autism Project has been around for close to 20 years now, and we work internationally with different autism centers who are providing services to autistic children and young adults. And we work all over the world from countries in Africa, like Kenya and Tanzania and Rwanda, to the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, over to Asia, Indonesia, India, China, and also in Ecuador and Dominican Republic. So we provide leadership support. We're like a global network of entrepreneurs. And now we're, we're happy to expand our community to the wonderful self-advocates that you see some who are on this call. So we've been doing the podcast as kind of like a pandemic project that just never ended. (laughs) And the community came out of that last year. So we've been doing monthly roundtable discussions 
and covering a wide range of topics like coping with stress and sensory overload or dating and relationships, masking and authenticity. And today we'll be talking about controversial topics. And when we were discussing which topic we would bring to the summit, we thought, how cool would it be to show what our community is about? And that is respect. Respect for each person's opinion. Everyone has a voice. No one is made wrong. And from that place of respect, we can stay curious. And so I think with some of the topics we'll be talking about today, which can be kind of contentious and sometimes polarizing, we'll be able to demonstrate how we actually can have a respectful dialogue. So with that context, I'm just going to give everyone about 30 seconds to introduce yourselves, and then we can go ahead and start the discussion. Hello, my name is Robert Schmoos. I am an autistic self-advocate as well as a mental health professional. I've been working with within the autistic community for a number of years. I have done speaking engagements on topics within the autistic community, such as masking, mental health, relationships, employment, and independence, and transitioning from adolescence to adulthood. I'm in eastern Pennsylvania, and I'm glad to be here. Thanks, Bob. Steph, you want to go next? Hello, everyone. My name is Steph. I'm an autistic self-advocate. I met Rachel and I learned about all this when I was working for Auticon, which is a company founded in Germany. They've got a UK office. They have an office in America now, I believe, that exclusively hires autistic people because usually for like lots of different IT roles, even from like error checking, like seeing the nitty gritty details to like general data analysis. So yeah, that's, that's how I got introduced to this. I was diagnosed quite late in life, so I sort of picked up a lot of masking abilities. And I kind of use that in a way to act because I do professional wrestling. So, yeah, that's kind of fun. Thanks, Steph. Happy you're here. I can go next. Hi, everybody. It's Ryan Litchfield. I'm an autism self-advocate. I've been doing work in the field of human services rehabilitation and also in gerontology. I've been doing a lot of public speaking engagements and a lot of research in the field of autism. One of my special interests is autism in the context of aging. As we know, there's more people being diagnosed on the spectrum, and it's now occurring you know, in the later stages of life as well. And I work for an agency, part of like a personal care management program, help with the administrative portion in an organization which involves employees with disabilities and stuff. So it's, it's very rewarding to do such things. So I'm, and I'm glad to be here. So thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Michael. I'm Michael Gilberg. I'm a special education attorney and self-advocate. I grew up with undiagnosed Asperger's and now I represent children in special education proceedings who were not getting appropriate educational services to avoid some of the challenges I went through growing up. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. And Karen. Hi, I'm Karen Shapiro. I'm in Los Angeles, California, and I'm the mom of David Sharif, a self-advocate. Thanks, Karen. And Ben? Hi, I'm Ben Sharif. I'm the older brother of David Sharif, an autistic self-advocate. I am also a filmmaker in the midst of developing a documentary about the transition to adulthood for individuals on the spectrum. 
It's nice to be with you all today. All right. And Danielle. Hi, everyone. I'm Danielle Terrell. I'm a professional in the field. I've worked with individuals across the lifespan from 2 to 87, and I currently work with 17 to 22-year-olds diagnosed with autism that are in the transition stage of their life as a transition coordinator for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. All right. We have a very diverse group here, and I do want to acknowledge Karen and Ben. David Sharif was a really, really beloved member of this community and he would have, I could just imagine how excited he would be to join this round table. So this is an honor of him as well. All right, let's get started. Let me just give a shout out to Sarah Bradford. Thank you so much for putting this summit together and bringing us all here. You are welcome to join the room. We'd love to hear your voice in this conversation. It looks like our ninth member is not coming today, so there's space for you. So feel free to just hop back in. Let's start with talking about person-first or identity-first language. You know, this can evoke some strong emotions in people as long as with all of our topics today. So if someone says something that you don't agree with, you know, just stay in that space of learning instead of making people wrong, which I know this group doesn't really do anyway. Just wanted to put that reminder out there. So, you know, when we're talking about person first or identity first language, person first would be someone with autism and identity first would be autistic person. So just to clarify that. Now, I want to open it up to the self-advocates here. Which preference do you go by and why? I'll start. I mean, I'm indifferent. I think some other people get really worked up about it and find it to be a big deal to me. It doesn't really matter whether you say autistic person or person with autism. I think it's a personal preference. It's not something I'm hung up on. Although when someone asked what's the difference, I said, I guess and it took me a while to learn as a self-advocate because I didn't care either way. What, what I realized, though, is for the people who do care, I guess the way I look at it is this. You would say you you want to equate autism with things like race or gender or sexual orientation. You say a black person or a gay person. You don't say a person with blackness or a person with gayness. So you want it to be like that. So autistic person. Whereas on the other side, you wouldn't call someone a cancer person. You'd call them a person with cancer. So you make it more like race or gender versus cancer, which is an illness. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Would never say a person with blackness it's always like yeah i've never thought of that before right would you say then that the person with something is usually something negative not real not necessarily i just thought of the example and obviously you know like person with cancer or a person with aids when you think of illnesses you wouldn't call them a cancer person right Okay. So it's just something that I thought of. It's not a big deal to me, but I know some it met, some people get really worked up about it. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts? What do you like to go by? Go ahead, Jeff. I usually go either way, but the, the key factor is I try to be mindful of what people perceive in their way of thinking. Like if they are first person language, I tend to res- I'll, I'll respect that. Sometimes I'll say things like, you know, autistic or a person with autism or something like that. Usually it's kind of spur of the moment type for someone like myself. And uh, 
but the key factor is kind of, you know, respecting what people say and, you know, doing that sort of thing. Got it. So you just, you kind of go back and forth. Yes. Okay. Yes, Steph, go ahead. Hi. Yeah. So I think for me, I kind of just personally, obviously, if someone says that they prefer something, I'm not going like, to be like randomly disrespectful. And so, so same with pronouns, like if they want to be called something, I'd, I'll say it because it's no skin off my nose. But for me personally, what I like is autistic. So because it's kind of reclaiming it. Like, I mean, I'm not LGBT, but I know in that community, they've reclaimed the word queer. At least I don't know if it's the same in the US, but in the UK, there's a lot of people that use the word queer as like this is my identity, this part of me. So it used to be like a kind of ooh, not nice word. So like being autistic kind of had these used to have these negative connotations, and it's all about reclaiming it and kind of like we've all heard the Rain Man stereotype, and it's like oh, how many times we heard this? So, but you want to take that and reclaim it. So like in my LinkedIn status, I've got like rain woman. because it's like, I've heard this stupid joke so many times, I'm going to reclaim it. And again, in the UK, we have, there was a petition that women wanted to walk late at night and they were reclaiming the word slut and it was called slut walk. And it, it's nothing to do with, and it, it was just like reclaiming a negative word. So that's personally why I like to say I'm autistic. All right. Interesting. Ryan? Yeah, I think, you know, kind of like what everybody else was just mentioning, I think, you know, just respecting the person's wishes in terms of how they want to be called by, you know, if somebody wants to be called autistic, if somebody wants to be called a person with autism, you know, I I think, you know, it's that that whole idea of autonomy and the idea of, you know, giving that person that, you know, that decision on, you know, how they want to be, you know, called. What's really important to understand, too, is you know, kind of like the other things like cancer, autism, anything, you know, I think the most important thing to understand is that first and foremost, you're always going to be a person, you know, you're not just a person with a disability, you know, a disability is never going to define you as a person because there's people with disabilities, including those with autism that go out to do such incredible things. They go out to, you know, solve the world's greatest problems they, you know, connect with various people in the community. You make those connections. You have those networking opportunities, you know, these opportunities to really make a life change for the better, just like everybody else. And really just, you know, having those opportunities, I think it's important. And um, I just think, again, you know, when we think about, you know, oh, you know, like, oh, a disability, it's like sometimes, it, you know, it, from a human services and rehabilitative perspective, we look at, you know, in terms of supports. So there's some individuals, for example, on the autism spectrum that might need more support than another individual. But that does not mean that that person is like not a person. You know, it's what, like I said, same thing, cancer diagnosis or epilepsy or any of those kinds of things. We all have strengths, we all have talents, and we all have the same hobbies and interests. So I I think, you know, those are like the key takeaways, you know, just from like what I've said is just respecting the person's wishes on how they want to be, you know, preferred, what their preference is. And then I think just, again, just keeping in mind that the person is always going to be a person and not just somebody with a disability, just like everybody else. Yeah. There was a poll that was posted in the community about this. And it was interesting. 33% 
voted person first and 66, 66% voted identity first. And I know there was this argument for the person first language coming from a place of kind of like what you're talking about, Ryan, like a person-centered approach in providing services. So in that case, you put the person at the center and go from there. Karen or Ben, Danielle, do you have any comments to make about this? I always thought that if you said with autism, it would be like a disease. It would sound like, you know, it would be looked at as not as something that would be a disease. And But I noticed that David would often say with autism and not say autistic. And I, I wish I had asked him why. I never did. Growing up, I was very much aware of how to talk to him and talk to others and describe. And I always said autistic. Hmm. Like I said, I think it's personal preference. A lot of people like myself just don't care. It doesn't matter either way. It's not, to me, something to get worked up about. I think David, my younger brother, felt very similar that there were other distinctions that were more important, other battles worth fighting. But that's not to say that the verbiage and how we speak, the words we choose to describe people, don't have a profound impact. I think it's very important and just to emphasize what Brian and many others have said about people's autonomy and respecting how they they choose to identify. Because, I mean, I can understand both sides of, of the coin. You know, there's the idea that, you know, I'm a person and my autism doesn't define me. Uh, and then there are, there are other people who it does define them. It's an inextricable part of their identity attached to who they are. And both are, are fine. And it's, I think, again, allowing the autonomy of the other person to dictate those preferences. Yeah, I agree. Respecting what others choose and how they want to identify and how they communicate their needs and their lifestyle. And I think it's important as a professional connecting with individuals and families, especially with younger children, to see how much do they know about their diagnosis, if they know anything, and having that conversation with families and supporting them to this, um, you know, if they decide how they're going to dispose it to their child. And then as they grow over, older, how they want to express themselves. Yeah. Welcome back, Sarah. What do you like to go by? Hi, since, you know, mine is very fresh and new. So at this point, I don't have any preferences. Um, I have been, I guess, introducing myself as an autistic woman with a perception from a wife and mother and now self point of view. So that's very uh, exciting to be able to share those, those perspectives to people and especially to parents who I think are looking for the most support and out of a place of maybe needing the most information as a new part on their journey. Yeah. Well, thank you everyone for sharing your perspectives. And I think it's just important to, this is a great example of how autism is not a monolith and we can't expect everyone to go by the same rules. So For the sake of time, let's move on to our next topic here, which is the puzzle piece symbol. Would anyone like to actually take the lead on this and describe the history of the puzzle piece symbol and what it comes from, if you know? 
what I know is that Autism Speaks uses it as their logo. And I think a lot of the people who don't like the puzzle, I don't mean to speak for others, but I know there are challenges with Autism Speaks as an organization. And I, I think that what I know is David embraced the autism piece because he looked at it as part of his own puzzle of solving mm-hmm. himself. But I know that the negativity might come from that. Right. But, yeah, there is that that linkage um, to Autism Speaks. And I think part of that history is the objectives of um, curing autism and thinking about autism as something to be rid of. So, yeah. Okay, let's open it up to the self-advocates and hear what you think. Do you like to be represented by the puzzle piece? Do you prefer the infinity sign, which I know a lot of people like, that rainbow symbol? Go ahead, Jeff. Well, honestly, I started off using the puzzle piece back when I first started doing my self-advocacy and public speaking, but after hearing feedback from my audience that, you know, the puzzle piece is a bad representation, I started using the infinity symbol just so I could start reaching out to people that way. And I mean, some of my colleagues use the puzzle piece, but for me personally, I would use the infinity symbol more just so that's kind of a strong representation of in in that regard. And that's just how I, I, I do it, you know? All right. Thanks, Jeff. I'll also add that the blue puzzle piece, some people may not agree with it because it was representing a boy diagnosis or um, a male autistic view, and it didn't include a female perspective. Some other people um, in my research that the puzzle piece is something missing, and Mm. that's another reason why individuals wouldn't agree with it. Thank you for adding that, Danielle. I think I've always been indifferent on the puzzle piece. I know a lot of people get upset because of the issues surrounding Autism Speaks. And what I find is very often you have people who are well-intentioned. They don't know all the ins and outs and the politics of the community. So they'll put up a puzzle piece to support autism. But in their mind, they're not doing anything wrong. But they'll have self-advocates get very upset with them because they will say, well, you're doing this and we don't like it. And it's against the community. And it's usually well-intentioned. Mm-hmm. But yeah, again, I'm fairly indifferent on the whole thing. You know, I love that point, Michael, that most people, if they're going into, you know, doing a post, I, I can't even think of one post that I've ever seen that has been, um, except for maybe the Tylenol lawsuits. Okay, well, we'll go that that's, I don't um, know that they're doing the best thing. But however, I think that just, the fact that when most people do post and they are posting to support autism and they do use a puzzle piece, it is with good intention. And it's both great that people are able to share their opinions and how they feel about it. At the same time, like you said, without the information, they may feel discouraged to then again support and do another post, which isn't a place we should make anyone feel. You know, if people are coming with love and intentions to support, then we can just maybe gently say, hey, these are some other better ways to do so, rather than knock them down and make them feel bad about the choices that they had no information otherwise to make. 
also the puzzle piece is really boring like there's loads of creative people I'm not super artistic but I've seen some people that were called low functioning autistic and they're really good at art like they're now selling art for like 10,000 a pop which is ridiculous but we've got a lot of creative minds we all just need to come together you know in my opinion infinity logo is boring puzzle piece boring let's like make a think tank of autistic people to like come up with some really cool logo and yeah you can all use it you know, I think it just goes back to, you know, just, you know, respecting, you know, people's preferences. You know, I think some people might be okay with the puzzle piece and then there'll be others that want to represent autism in other ways. And that's what makes the autism spectrum so amazing and unique is that we all, you know, all of us, you know, autism self-advocates and for those that are on the spectrum, we are all here for a purpose. You know, we're all here for a purpose and we're all here. You know, we have strengths. We bring something, you know, to the world, to to the people that we connect with. A puzzle piece, you know, it's, it's just one symbol out of many other different symbols. It's almost kind of like you see that one small detail in that but at the end of the day, it's kind of like we're trying to just look at the whole picture of of autism and really just get that amazing perspective of like, this is what autism is, whether that's in the form of a movie or, you know, in a television show or in, you know, in a book or in a novel. And so I really like, you know, like Stephanie's point about the whole creativity and because again, not, that utilizes everybody's strengths, but it also, it, it represents who they are. And it promotes that sense of autonomy and respect among all communities and individuals. Yeah, I would add that I think to come up with a symbol for the entire autistic community is as futile an effort as trying to decide whether they should be called person with autism or autistic person. You're, it's, again, assuming that this population is a monolith and that there aren't differing opinions of of what symbol you want to represent you. But I think what's important with these conversations are still important because we can pull back the veil and see what's behind each argument. Why does the autistic community feel so strongly about this symbol? And then when you can dissect that, you can look back at the historical perception of autism. I know some people dislike it because it's the idea of a puzzle piece, you know, there it's a puzzling condition or it's a very infantile kind of thing, which I never really got because I, I'm an adult and I still like doing puzzles. But um, <laughs> uh, I think that it's important for people to understand the history behind these symbols and what they mean for some people, right? Because symbols are as powerful as words. So if we can get to on the same consensus with that discourse, I think we can move the conversation towards something more positive as opposed to what not to do or what not to show. Yeah. Thank you for that, Ben. The thing with symbols and and imagery, they evoke emotion and they can mean something different for everyone. It's kind of open to interpretation, but you're right. When there is that historical attachment and people have very strong negative feelings towards something, it's hard to reverse that. Like you can't like, oh, never mind. Actually, it's okay now. So I also get that it could be really helpful to have something representing the community when we're talking about international development 
And I see this with the Global Autism Project and our partners that we work with around the world, who a lot of them, they do use the puzzle piece symbol still, and it helps families get support and it helps them get resources that they might not otherwise, because they see that puzzle piece on the outside door of a a building. And they're like, oh, that means autism. I can go here if I need help. So to then shift everything to the infinity symbol or something else, if there's a think tank that we come up with this really great creative design, it would take time then to kind of disseminate that internationally. So it's complicated. I'm not sure really what the right answer is here, but we as an organization have been criticized before for having the puzzle piece in our logo. And we've listened and we've changed. And there's a great podcast episode with Cassie Hardin-Scott. She talks about the evolution of our logo and why we decided to steer away from that. So, People have the best of intentions, but I think a lot of people have moved away from the puzzle piece because they get attacked online if they have the puzzle piece, even if they're well-intentioned. I think you know, a lot of it is we have to look at people's intentions, not just... Mm-hmm you know, what might be the origin of something. What David did was he, on one of his um, a website, was he framed his website in colorful puzzle pieces. So it didn't look like the blue symbol that you're used to seeing, but it still was puzzle pieces. And to him, that signified the puzzle he was trying to solve within himself in reaching out to people. And so he modified what is often considered the puzzle piece, but it looks like puzzle pieces and made it his own. I like that. Actually, I'll make one little plug. Tomorrow, Ben and I will be, uh, he wrote a blog about it that we'll be sharing tomorrow, as well as a poem that he wrote about the puzzle piece in our session tomorrow. Okay. We'll definitely have to stay tuned for that. Any other comments on this topic before we move on? All right. So I think we have time for just one more. ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis. So this is uh, it's a big one to stuff into 10 minutes, <laughs> but I'd just love to introduce the conversation and see where people are standing with this. So first, is everyone familiar with ABA? Yeah. Okay. What are your thoughts? From somebody that has had lived experience, I mean, I'm, I'm part of it, I will say, is it was very intense. I was fortunate in my life to have a really good mentor, like ABA therapist, that would, you know, teach me things like eye contact and learning how to associate objects with words and learning how to approach different social situations and stuff. Because Prior to that diagnosis of autism at the age of two that I got, you know, I had 20 to 40 vocabulary words and they just regressed. So the red flags were pretty much there when I was, you know, I couldn't talk. I couldn't verbalize. I couldn't gesture. I just had temper tantrums. I would cry a lot. And it was just so just going forward, um, basically, you know, I went through about 20 to 40 hours of therapy a week. So back in the day, it was like one in 10,000 children being diagnosed with autism. You know, when I was, you know, diagnosed now, it's it's in, on the rise. And it's like, 
part of it is I can see where some people, you know, it depends on the experiences of individuals where some people may have not had the best of experiences. And then you have people that have had those good experiences. And I think the reason I had, you know, some good experiences is because I had somebody that was personable and somebody that I was able to connect with. And to this day, I even connect with my former ABA therapist. I went out to dinner with her a while back. I just think it's almost like a toolkit. That's how I looked at it. It's like a toolkit for navigating life. It's like, you know, you learn these different skills, like, like social skills. It's like, you know, to apply in different situations. But the reality is, is that like life is not always black and white. There's going to be those shades of gray, as they say. But, you know, like they thought I was going to have to learn sign language when I was two, like when I was not talking and stuff. And that part of that process was teaching me to communicate and stuff. And now this is where I am today. You know, this is what has led to be a success story for me. So taking into consideration, like everybody's had different perspectives and stuff. But just from my perspective, it's really helped me come far in life. Thank you for sharing that, Ryan. Well, my perspective is, so I co-chairing a task force on ABA through the National Autism Society. And I think that the problem is not everybody works with the same definition of ABA. Is Some people view ABA as a rigid, you have to go by this formula that's laid out in, in, in a BCBA guideline. Some people view ABA as any form of behavior modification. And I think we have to look at two things. First, what is the behavior we're addressing? Is it something dangerous versus something that's quote unquote weird or unusual. Someone wants to flap their hands or stim or whatever, who cares? But I represent kids who run in the street. You have to deal with that behavior. You can't just say he's autistic, let him run on the street. Or kids who are, I've had clients who are masturbating in class, students. You can't just say, oh, he's autistic, let him masturbate in class. These are behaviors that have to be addressed. And I think the second question is how you address them. Are you addressing them through positive means or negative means? Everyone must be familiar with the Judge with the Judge Rottenberg Center, which is famous for its electric shock therapy and against you know ch- people with autism children. And we shouldn't be electrocuting kids with autism. So I think it depends how you do the intervention and what the behavior is. Mm-hmm. Did you mean that literally electrocuting? Yeah, electric shock therapy. Mm-hmm. They electrocute them with ten times the strength of a police taser at the school in Massachusetts. The people have been trying to shut down in the autism community for years. I guess you're a little shielded from it in England. <sighs> yeah, I don't. I don't know. It's like if I have a child, and now because because I had I personally had a late diagnosis, there are things that I went through that were so hard. And I have one of my best friends had a super early diagnosis. We're like super alike. She's like me if I was diagnosed early, and um. It's really hard to know like what someone's capability is. It's like if you have a kid who's good at piano, how much do you push them to learn the piano? How much do you, you know, are they going to resent you? Are they going to hate it? If they don't have a natural talent, if they can't play the piano, they can't do two hands, they're never going to be able to get it. So it's almost like torture in a way to keep pushing them. But I think, yeah, I wouldn't know how much to, it does seem like it puts a lot of pressure on the kid, but like, is pressure good? I don't know. I don't know what's a healthy amount of pressure. You know, I think that once again, I have a really great perspective to see this from a parenting point of view and be able to understand we had 
a few different therapists that we went through with our son in early intervention. And the the first few therapists, they weren't especially great for our family, for our son's learning style. And so I think it's really important that you as a parent be able to advocate in the way that say, you know, this person isn't working out for us. We'd like to try something new. Because that's the thing about having all of these resources available is that you aren't just forced to do one thing with one company. You know, nowadays, and and this for me was a decade ago, which there weren't as many companies as today. And today I see the, you know, autistic schools and all these other programs that I wish would have been (laughs) available to my son back in that time. But there was a jump from one company to the next where we saw the most incredible, incredible progress and growth from our child. And for him to be able to start making relationships was so important for us. And for him to see the importance of those relationship building skills that he was getting was life-changing for him forever. And it's so important that when we find what isn't working, it gives us the opportunity to find what can work. So always keep looking is is what I say. Because yes, there are some therapies and electroshock therapy. I mean, it's that's horrible. (laughs) Let's just say that that's horrible for any type of human or living creature in any way. But when we can provide interventions for kids, for adults, that we can build on their strengths and build their challenges with their strengths, that's where we'll find success for individuals that we want to support, I think. Hmm. I agree. And speaking from a professional perspective. I was an RBT for years. I worked at in-home therapy and in an elementary and middle school. And for parents as an RBT, I always made sure that there was strong rapport there and letting parents know, you know, speak up, ask questions, advocate for your child for everything that you may need. And, you know, there's been some things that don't work and other things that are amazing from communication development, safety skills, interacting with peers and making friends. And um, one of the things that I've noticed is there aren't a lot of BCBAs or RBTs that experience working with adults. A lot of providers stop services at 18, and there are so many different skills in a transition stage and throughout adulthood that I think would be really helpful in expanding different resources to an older age group would be great. The poll in the community was 50-50 on this topic. So I think some people are really torn. They see that When applied in the right way, ABA can be really beneficial with the right therapist. And unfortunately, there are all of these contingencies that need to be in place, but it could say that for other therapies too. I will say as a BCBA, having worked with so many families and teachers and seeing the progress and seeing those strengths come out, as much as I believe in in the science, I do see its drawbacks. And another conversation that was brought up in the community was um, this issue of private equity firms taking over these ABA companies. And I saw that firsthand also with an agency that I worked at in California. 
when money gets involved, it's unfortunately, not always, but sometimes the case that you lose that person-centered focus. And this is happening kind of rampantly in the ABA business. So something to look out for. That's a big point that it's become a lot of this has gotten lost, I think, in the issue that money is taken over and this issue of ABA and, you know, services has become a moneymaker for a lot of people. People see a way to make money in the system of autism, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, then the quality goes down because you're you're skimping out on the supervision and the real training of the therapist. And so I just want to say to the chat, they're asking what the common acronym means. So ABA is Applied Behavior Analysis. Does that help? Is that the one that you're talking about? Go ahead, Ben. Were you going to say something? No, I just want to... Everybody's made extremely valuable points here. Um, And especially, I was going to bring up the whole monetary aspect. And I still have a lot of research to do in this regard, but a lot of the benefits that people get from disability services and the different kinds of services that people can access with uh, whatever uh, services they're receiving from the government limits what kind of supports they can receive. And so if you're a parent looking to support your child that was on the spectrum and all that you can afford to get is ABA, that complicates things as well. And so I think that, again, we have to look further back at what are the intentions of parents and therapists and everybody involved with regards to what behaviors they want to target, for lack of a better word, what goals exist for whatever person is receiving said therapy. And I think that the board, the uh, ECBA board, needs to take another step in acknowledging the history of malpractice that exists in this area. And again, it's not a judgment on every single person who's a BCBA. It's more just examining that these people have had this effect from our work and we have to, you know, acknowledge that and do better and learn from the mistakes of the past and incorporate other stakeholders, autistic people, into how we develop our methodology. And the science seems factually valid. It's, It's more the efficacy of how that science is utilized in human beings is my perspective at least. Right. If only the board would take that accountability. It comes down to money again, though, because it's funded by insurance. And once you say that it's causing harm, I agree with you, though. I think that would be a huge, huge step to bridging the gap between the autistic community and service providers. As a parent, I just want to say, I think this may sound simple, but I think listening to your child and observing your child and being open to what is going on is really a key here because I have found many parents who just think they know what's best and your child really knows what's best. And they will express it and share it in their own way. It may not be verbally the way we're used to it. It may be being more observant than it is just 
saying it directly, but I think that the person, the autistic person with autism, they'll know what's right for them and what's not in many cases. And uh, if we listen and if we look at what they're passionate about and what they care about deeply, then we can find the right paths to the right therapies and the light and give them what they need. Yeah. Thank you, Karen. I think let's end there. Those are some beautiful words to close with. And I just want to thank everyone here. Thank you, Sarah, for facilitating the summit. Thank you for all, to all the participants and community members for being here and sharing your perspectives. I think this has been a really, really fun conversation and I've learned so much from all of you. And just want to say to anyone who is watching, attending the summit, if you want to be part of our global autism community, we have open doors and you can go ahead and what is the best way? I think I'll put a link in our expo booth whenever that's ready and you can um, join the fun in our online platform. Thank you, Rachel, for bringing us all together. Thank you so much. Been really interesting hearing everyone. Pretty cool. Thanks. Have a great day. Great to see Thanks you guys. Take care, Thank guys. you, Sarah. Bye, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. What are some of your thoughts on today's topics? Do you feel strongly about any of them? Share your ideas over in our online global autism community. Are you a self-advocate wanting to connect with other autistic people? Or are you a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one? Are you a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice? Whatever your role related to autism is, you can join our online global autism community to collaborate with people all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.